Thanks, guys. Uh, turn with me, if you would, to Joshua chapter, where are we? Two. Joshua chapter two. Uh, we're going to continue on in Joshua. We're in our third week. And, uh, you know, if you've ever been, some of you have, um, have been to my office. And in my office, just over there, if you ever want to come by, feel free. Uh, I, have a, I have a couple of pictures on my desk. And one of them is a drawing of Mark chapter 2, where the friends lower their friend on the mat down through the hole in the roof. And then the other one uh, was a gift uh, from my brother for Christmas a few years ago, and it's a signed picture of Johnny Cash. And people always ask me, who is that? Uh, In the U.S., I think people would know a little quicker, but most people have heard of Johnny Cash, and it's really funny, (laughs) because people walk in, who is that? And I say, well, it's Johnny Cash. And immediately they kind of go, huh? Why, why does a pastor have a picture of Johnny Cash on his desk? Well, then I sort of have to explain. You know, Johnny Cash is oddly one of my heroes. And if you know anything about him, or if you've seen the movie that they made a number of years ago, sort of about the first half of his life, you know that he struggled with drugs and alcohol and was sort of the first rock and roll star to trash hotel rooms and make a big mess of everything. And, and I always sort of liked his music, But I began to really admire him when I read his autobiography for the first time. In his autobiography, which I would recommend to anyone, it's just called Cash, he starts out essentially by saying this, and this is my paraphrase. He says, whatever you think of me or whatever you've heard about me, let me first say this. I am a follower of Jesus Christ and always have been. I've just struggled with a lot of different demons in my life. And I read that and I think, man, how beautiful is that? And what's even better about this picture on my desk is that it's this picture of him and he, it's signed. And it's kind of hard to see. You've got to kind of tilt it in the light. But it was signed and he wrote it out to some woman named Kathy. But it says to Kathy, I forget the last name, but it just, he just signed it, Jesus loves you. Signed Johnny Cash. And it's such a beautiful reminder of me, one, coming from a family that has background in alcoholism and addiction, but also just thinking how God can use anybody. And tonight, we get to talk about a great story where God used someone that we would not expect. Not only was she a liar, not only was she a prostitute, but she was also guilty of treason against her home country. And yet God used her to do an amazing thing, and many of us know her name. Her name is Rahab. And so tonight, uh, I would invite you um, to open your heart and open your mind to the idea that God can really use anyone to accomplish his ends. Uh, We're going to read a decent little chunk of scripture. Many of you are familiar with this story, but I would invite you to follow along either on the screen or in the Bible in front of you. Uh, to Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. It says this, Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shechem. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. And the king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men came to me, but I don't know where they had come from. And at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went, but go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she has laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies, 
on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for when you came out of Egypt, or what you did to Shiloh and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother and my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. This, too, is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. So what's going on here? Well, it's, it's pretty clear, you know, last week we talked about the kind of coronation of Joshua from the Lord, and then the Lord's calling on his life, and, and here he says, we're going to start, and we're going to do what? We're going to go spy. We're going to go figure out what's going on, and especially Jericho. If you've never studied um, the Old Testament Israel or what was happening or the way the land sort of shaped up or you've ever been there, you know that Jericho was in a very, very important place. Um, Israel is, is very naturally protected by mountains and valleys, and, and to come from the east or the south, you sort of have to come by Jericho. And actually, historians and archaeologists believe it is the oldest continually inhabited city on the earth, and that this city was such a vital position that they had a huge fort, a huge sort of outpost there. And to come into the land of Israel would mean that Jericho was sort of the most important thing. Right? As the Israelites are coming to take the land, they would have to... Jericho was, was kind of a big one. And so Joshua says, go and spy, especially Jericho, and see what's going on. And so they do, but we have this detail that's really interesting. They go to the house of a prostitute, which many of us sort of think, ooh, that's a little weird for the Bible. You know, why did these guys go there? Why not someplace else? Well, to be sort of just rational and level-headed about it... Um, we know that Rahab's house was in the city wall from later on when it talks how she lowered them down out the window. And, and, and odds are this was sort of by, right by the city gate. And this was a house for travelers that were coming through. And so it wasn't that they went, it, they may have, I don't know, but it wasn't that they went to partake of services, more so that this was a place where travelers would come through and that this was a place where, where these sorts of things happened. But what we need to know most of all about the land of Canaan, and especially Jericho, was that this was a strong military outpost. Uh, This was a military city that sort of defended the whole region. And that we also need to know that these people who lived there were not just normal people like you and I, that Canaan was actually a very immoral place. Jericho especially. With all of these soldiers and with all of these people living there, Immorality ran rampant. We know that Canaanite religions were polytheistic. They included animal and human sacrifice and were in direct opposition to the Hebrew God. And what's amazing about this passage is that there's so many different things to look at. One of the things this also brings up that we'll talk about in coming weeks in the study of Joshua is the topic of holy war. 
Because when two cultures in the ancient world would fight, it wasn't just that the people were fighting, but it was essentially saying, our God versus your God. And whoever won, their God was most powerful. And these cultures in, in this area, and these people that the Israelites are going to encounter, would go with their gods and their idols out in front of them into battle and would say that our God is greater than your God. And so this city of Jericho was very, very important. And it's a very important idea to understand in the coming weeks as we study the conquest of Canaan and what's happening here and why God was very, very clear about his instructions. But either way, they're staying here. And they go to this house, of this woman, this inn, this place, and word got out in verse 2. And in verse 3, they knew that many people would be coming uh, to their borders. You know, the king says, I know spies are coming. We know the Hebrew people are out there somewhere, and they're going to be coming for us. You know, if you think about it, it'd be very obvious that if an entire nation was moving on your borders. You know, if you think about it in terms of Switzerland with the, some of the different valleys, imagine that all of Glarus emptied out and just sort of started walking toward Zurich. You know, we would notice. <laughs> and, and so the king says, hey, we know these people are on our borders. We know they're getting ready to cross the Jordan River. What are they doing? We need to find these spies. We need to stop them. But Rahab, she hides them. And then she lies. And I remember thinking and first hearing this story. I became a Christian when I was early on as a teenager, 13 years old. And I remember reading this story and just thinking, this is so weird. I thought I wasn't supposed to lie. You know, especially me when I was a kid, I, was a, I had a problem with lying, you know. Uh, and I would lie all the time. And I was a bad liar, but I would still do it all the time. And I remember getting in trouble for it. And then I would read it and I'd think, why is she lying? That's not fair. Why does she get to lie? You know, why is this in the Bible? And not only why is this lie in the Bible, why is it play such a prominent role? I mean, she committed treason against her country. Why would she betray her people? And I've heard different people say it's reasons like this that the Bible is nonsense. Because on the one hand, God gives these commands, these Ten Commandments, and he says, thou shalt not lie. But in the very next thing, to gain his advantage, he just says, well, okay, it's fine, it's not a big deal. And people say these are, these are contradictions in Scripture. That God would condemn lying on one hand and then use lying on the other hand. I confess that's how I thought for a long time. And it's hard to think about these things. And I'm not an old man, but I, I, since I've been a Christian, give or take 20 years, the more I've realized our God is not only black and white. Our God is not only in absolutes, as I was talking with Michael about something earlier this evening. That God does all sorts of things we don't understand. That God does all sorts of things that are different. That God saves people in a myriad of different ways. That God does things in the Old Testament and through the New Testament that we just think, why did he do it that way? Let me just encourage you with this. This is a bigger topic than we can talk about tonight when it comes to black and white and right and wrong and why God used to lie. But let me just say this. That God does so many different things in so many different ways in Scripture. It is so worth going through and reading them and finding out the heart of God behind what he's doing rather than just focusing on the action. Because in verse 5, we see Rahab lie again, and she helps them even more. And she says, no, they, 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 weren't here. they were here, yeah, but, but, but they left. If you go catch them, you'll, get, you'll, you'll, you'll get them, you'll, you'll find them, it's great. 
and leads them away. But as we see in verses 8 to 13, she had another reason. Her plea to the spies, to the Hebrew people, is, is, I'm doing this because I want help. I'm doing this because I need help, and I know who you are, and I know what your God did. And the spies say, all right, deal. We'll save you. We'll save you and your family. So I want to ask three questions tonight, just very simply and very quickly. What's so amazing about Rahab? Why did God allow a lie to be used? And what happens with Rahab in the future? Well, start with the easiest one. What happened? Uh, Many of you know the story that Jericho was indeed destroyed. That God asked his people to do something that seemed a little weird. (laughs) March around the city. (laughs) Seven times. And then the wall will fall down. And they did, and it did, and Jericho was destroyed. And we know that Rahab was indeed saved after this. And in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, we see her name. A very clear indication that she was indeed part of God's plan. That even though she was a Canaanite, even though she was a prostitute, even though she lied, that when she came to God humbly, that God delivered her and God included her and revealed to her and her family his plan for her. It says at the end of this chapter that Rahab and her family became part of the nation of Israel and lived humbly with their God for the rest of their life. The second question, why did God use the lie or allow the lie? How is that possible? This is what I want to talk about when we talk about how God allows and why God does what he does. You know, in, in the, the spiritual arena, profession, we have this phrase that we use. Um, I've shared it with some of you before. It's called the functional image of God. Some of you are going to be familiar with it. What is your functional image of God? What that means is essentially is, how do you see God, and then how does that play out in your day-to-day life, right? So if we see God as an old man in the sky with a gray beard shaking his finger at us, you know, waiting for us to do something wrong, we live our life in fear because we're afraid of his judgment, you know? If we see, you know, on the other hand, if we see, we don't see the authority of God, but we only see, this movie calls it Buddy Jesus, But if we only see Jesus as our best friend who loves us so much all the time and there's no authority, we just kind of float around through life thinking that everything's perfect and we miss out on some of the things God's doing. We all have a functional image of God. Some of us, it comes from how we were raised and and maybe some of you were raised in Catholic environments or maybe a very strict home and so your functional image of God is more harsh. Or some of you came to Christ later in life and your functional image of God is much more loving. However you see it, it affects your daily life. And so when we look at God in this, if we see God as only legalistic and punishing and and, and there's a lie so he can't use it, we miss out on what God is doing in this story. You know what I mean by that is I've once heard someone say, well, God can't be around any evil. That God cannot be near it, that God cannot condone it, that God cannot see it, that God has to be separate from all evil. I once had a very wise person say to me, Never say God can't. Because we don't know. We don't know why God is doing what he's doing. You know, if we only think, if we think in black and white and in these really harsh lines, we're trying to put God into a box that we understand. You know, some of you have seen, and this is, honestly, I'm so, I, I get really simplistic. Do you remember the movie Aladdin? The, the Disney movie, Aladdin, where he, where he goes down into the cave and he rubs it and the genie comes out and Robin Williams, his voice is doing all the crazy things, right? 
he says this line that this is what I think about when I think about people trying to put limits on God, right? He says, phenomenal cosmic power, itty bitty living space. You know, what we're trying to do is take a God who has phenomenal cosmic power to do all things to work out for his good, for his plan, and cram him into a little box that we can understand. If we have a rigid view of who God is and how God works, we we miss so much of the things he is doing around us. And before you mishear me and think I'm being universalist or that I don't believe absolute truth, that's absolutely not the case. I believe in absolute truth centered around the cross of Jesus Christ and the truth of this book. But as I read the Bible and I read a story like this, I see God moving in so many different ways. I see him working in ways I don't understand. You know, some of my favorite passages are in the Old Testament in the Minor Prophets, and he says things like this. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that that you would not believe even if you were told. This is what God says to his people. I'm going to do something that even, I'm I'm trying to tell you, but you don't understand it. You know, I believe God can use anyone and anything. He can use a lie. He can use a liar. He can use a sinner. He can use a prostitute, a tax collector, a prophet. In the book of Hosea, he has Hosea marry an unfaithful woman. And he says, and you're going to stay with this woman so that you know what it's like when Israel worships other gods. So when we talk about how we see God or our functional image of God and how this plays out in our life, it must start first and foremost with the things we were singing about tonight, which is God's love. That God loves us as his creation and he desires what is best for us. And it also must center around his holiness and his ability to do amazing things. Like I just read, that's from the prophet Habakkuk in in, in chapter 1. He says, you wouldn't even believe the things I'm doing. God is so creative how he can take evil and make it something that shines light on how great he is. And we see it right here. So the last question I want to ask and I want to talk about as we talk about this story is the first one I mentioned, which is what was so special then about Rahab? What was it about Rahab that God said, no, I'm going to use you? Well, the reason can be seen clearly in verses 9, 10, 11, and 12. Some of you may have heard this before. Some of you may have seen this before. But in your Bible, especially when you go and read it in the Bible, she says something a couple of times. As I said, it starts in verse 9. She says, I know that the Lord, all caps. And then verse 10, we heard how the Lord, all capitals. And then again in verse 11 and again in verse 12. Now, if you've never studied the Bible before, you've never heard this before, some of you will know. When it says that, that's the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. And this is really important. Because she didn't just say, your God. It'd be one thing if she said, we're afraid of your God. But she says, Yahweh, the Hebrew name. She has, and this is important, she has some understanding of who this God was. The Canaanite people had an understanding. See, we often think when we read these stories, oh, God just was wiping out people for no reason. Critics will say that God was vindictive and this was some sort of weird ethnic thing. No, the Canaanites knew God. 
They knew the name of Yahweh. And not only did they know him, but some of these people were descendants of Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And some of them knew the name of the Hebrew God. And even if they didn't know all the history, they had heard, she said, about the Red Sea. They had heard about how Yahweh delivered them from Egypt. And they worshipped other gods all the same. They may not have known everything. They probably didn't have the Ten Commandments because Moses had just gotten them. But something in Rahab said, this name, this, this God, Yahweh, is worthy to be praised. This God, Yahweh, is the team I want to be on. And when I look at this story, I think of the story of Jonah and Nineveh. And I'm fairly confident that if the people of Jericho had the same heart as Rahab, and they said, we fear Yahweh, we, we want to worship Yahweh, Yahweh is the God who, who, who we want to trust, that God would have relented the same way he did in Nineveh. Rahab knew and Rahab believed the Hebrew people and that their God could save her. When we talk about how God works and what God's doing around us, we need to understand that Rahab came to God for help the only way she knew how, which was through God's servants. So she lied. Who cares? I mean, honestly, no one faulted lies when we have brutal, you know, evil regimes. No one faulted the lies of those trying to hide Jews in World War II. No one faulted the lies of anyone hiding anyone under an oppressive regime. Canaan was an evil place with false worship and false deity. And and Rahab saw these people and had heard the stories of Yahweh and said, this is a God I want to worship. And if we take this truth and apply it to our lives and our spiritual growth, we see something. We see that God doesn't necessarily desire perfection. Yes, God has rules, and yes, there's things we need to obey. But Rahab comes with humility and desiring for her family to be saved. And as the story goes on, she and her family are saved, and they became worshipers of God. You know, like I said, critics would say that these stories are about ethnic lines and the Jews versus these people and, and, and this and that. And, and it's not. It's about faith. And that God, when people repent and when people come to him in humility, he relents. You know, in the book of Jonah, it says this, that God's mercy always, that God's mercy always trumps his judgment. All scripture is about belief. All scripture is about faith. You know that passage I read you from Habakkuk where it says, I'm going to do something in your days you would not believe even if you were told, is when God says he's going to send the Babylonians to judge Israel and Judah. But in the very next chapter, it says that the righteous man lives by faith. Not by the law, not by being perfect, not by following every single little rule, but by faith. All scripture is about faith. And Rahab is the perfect example of God's priorities when he deals with us. It's the heart. It's the desire to worship him. He's not an oppressive dictator who favors his people. He favors those with pure hearts and honest worship. You know, when David was chosen as king, there's a great line that said that God does not look at the outward appearance as man does, but he looks at the heart. God sees our hearts. He sees our desires. For Rahab, he saw her desire for her and for her family and their desire to worship. And as the story goes, the people 
would take Jericho, as I said, in a miraculous conquering. And I truly believe that if the whole city had repented, that there wouldn't have been the same destruction. But when we look at this story and we think, how could God use a liar? How could God allow this? How, how can these things happen? We need to see a God who operates in all ways, in weird ways. Who can use anything in our lives to bring us to Him. Or He can use you to bring others to Him. See, we may be the person who needs redemption. We may be the person struggling in sin and just saying, I don't know how to get to God, but I'm just going to do whatever I can. But you may also be like the spy, and someone may come to you and not know the right words to say and not know the right things to do, but they just come to you and say, I need help. We must be always ready. Some things are certainly true and absolute, and I'm not saying to go and head and lie, and it's okay. But in a world of trying to condemn people based on rigid rules and laws, our functional image of God, how we see God in our everyday life, should be that of a God who can do anything. Our image of God must be rooted and centered around love of people and the redemption of all people. Our Corinthians reading is exactly why I chose that reading. The Apostle Paul says we can do everything. You can give everything you have to the poor. You can, do, you can have all of these gifts and you can speak eloquently and you can be a great you know, I mean, piano player or singer or musician of some other kind or a businessman or a salesman or a pastor or anything. But if we do not love people, we have nothing. And we are wasting our time. If you do not have love and grace at the center of your life, if you do not love the neighbor, your enemy, the prostitute, the sinner, the Muslim, the Hindu, the resident alien, the people different you, the people you argue with, the people your country fights with or has fought with in the past, if love is not the center of your life, you are wasting your time. Because when God saw this person, when God saw Rahab who had this awful past, who had probably made sacrifices to false gods, who had probably grown up in this oppressive, evil city and just tried to get by, and just tried to make money, just tried to stay alive. When God saw her heart and that she desired to love the Lord, he relented. He loved Rahab and her family so much. And when they turned from evil, I believe God was overjoyed. In the same way I talked about Johnny Cash, in the same way I talk about, you know, I've talked about my family before. When we come to God honestly and openly, he can use and do anything. But it's when we take God and we try to fit him into God will only save people who do these things. And God will only help people who live this way. And God will only, you know, do this for you if you come to me and you follow my rules. And that's when we limit God. That's when we say, okay, well, God, you have to fit into my understanding. And God doesn't fit into our understanding. That's why we worship him. That's why we praise him, because we can't understand him. We can't understand his ways. But that's what makes him so worthy of our worship. Please pray with me. Lord, I don't know why you've done all the things you do. Lord, I don't know why you seem to allow some evil but stop others. Lord, I don't know why There's so much pain and hurt in this world. Lord, but I know that each time a person comes to you with humility and honesty, you give them grace and love. 
Lord, let us be that same grace and love to our neighbor, to our enemy, to our family, to our friends. Let us take the things you've given us and pour them out freely upon all those we come in contact with. Lord, forgive us our judgments, our oppression, our bigotry, our lies, how we've hurt those we love most in this world. And teach us more of your grace and your love so that when we encounter a person like Rahab, we might share with them the love you have for them. Lord, above all, we thank you for your grace, which is how we found salvation. It's in your Son's name we pray these things. Amen. Uh, invite the